Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, and put in parentheses there David, in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now commend your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit of God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Lord, we ask for strength, for wisdom, for guidance from your Holy Spirit as we study this passage, Lord. And I ask, Lord, personally, that you would just use me as a mouthpiece for your text, that you would be seen, that you would be understood, and, Lord, that your people would be strengthened in such a way, Lord, that they could trust you, lean on you fully as they live their lives for your glory. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of my, uh, one of my favorite hymns, not musically, but from the perspective of poetry and content, is the hymn by William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You may know it. I will read it for you. This is what it says. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Yet fearful saints, fresh, or ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, 
and he will make it plain. Now friends, there's a, a poem that is born out of a great understanding and knowledge of God as he is revealed in his word. God does move in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He is one that makes sense of all of his providence. Now friends, it is important for us to recognize that God's ways truly are mysterious. They follow twists and turns in the ebb and flow of life in ways that we least expect. Yet sometimes with familiar stories like this or a familiar character like David, we may not necessarily comprehend the impact of those twists and turns in God's working in the actual affairs of the story that we're reading. So it's worth us regrouping our hearts and minds and coming back to this text afresh with new glasses that are looking for evidence of God's mysterious ways. Now David was busy tending his sheep, if you remember. And one day, his father summons him to the house because Samuel the prophet is there and they're cooking up a feast. David doesn't know all this necessarily. He has been out shepherding the sheep. And while that's been going on, Samuel's been going one by one through his brothers trying to determine which one God has determined to be his king. And all of them have been rejected by God. And so Samuel had asked, don't you have another son? And Jesse's like, well, yeah, there's David, but he's watching the sheep. And David is summoned now. And having been summoned, Samuel then anoints him as God's chosen king. So now we have the people's king, that's Saul, and we have God's anointed king, David, but David has not been crowned king yet. And that's what we read in the first part of chapter 16. Later, David would be summoned again. We read that this morning. But this time it would be at the request of Saul. And so the rejected king of Israel is summoning David into his service as a court musician. David may not have understood all of these events, but God had a reason. His providential plan was at work. Now, if you have read through 1 Samuel, there's something that you will know about this passage. It's one of those passages that you're left kind of scratching your head trying to figure out why is this here? Because in the next chapter is the wonderful story that we know about David and Goliath. And it seems in that story that Saul doesn't even know who this young man is. You know, who is this boy's father is the question. So how is it that David, having been brought into the context of you know, the, the king and his court, is somehow now out of Saul's mind? 
doesn't even know who he is. Well, part of the reason is because the narrator has chosen to do something. And what the narrator has chosen to do is chosen to take a, a later example in David's life and place it right here for a reason. And let's just think through the reason. What was the key verse that we looked at last week in 1 Samuel 16? It's verse 7, isn't it? This is, this is one that a lot of people know how to quote. For the Lord does not see, man, see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What is it that God was teaching us as we looked at that text last week? He was teaching us that we need to learn to see people the way he sees people. Not to measure them by their outward appearance but to measure them by their heart, by the character that is unseen. And when God looks at people, it's a heart to heart, not a eye to physical body thing. It's his heart to their heart. Do they match his will? Are they aligned with his purpose? Are they uh, connected to his word? Now as we move on in this story, it's a new story, it's kind of a new context, and what we're going to find now is not the answering the question, how do we evaluate man, but now the question is, how do we understand or view the circumstances of life, in particular now using this illustration that the narrator brings in of a time in David's life and in Saul's life, so that we can see that God is at work in the circumstances of his unfolding providence. God wants us to see that things happen in this world not by circumstance or coincidence, that he is the author of them. He is the one who is exercising his providence. And in our lives, it can be as mundane as you know, this person kind of got in front of me in traffic today. And you don't even think about it. But it can be as, as significant as, you know, I was almost on the freeway back in, was it 93, when the earthquake took place. And there's a providence that happens. And you say, why was I not on it? And why was I maybe at home when these happened? There is a providence of God that is at work in all of our lives, and we're going to see it specifically in the context of David and Saul. David has been anointed, but how in the world are we going to get from David in Bethlehem to David now being crowned king? How is that going to take place? Does Jesse just grab his brothers and march toward the capital and say, Saul, get out of here. David's the king. Is that how it's going to happen? That's not how God works it at all. And so here we have this wonderful story of God's careful providence over mankind. He, he works through the circumstances of life. They are the outflow of his providence in a sinful world. So today, here's the statement we want to think through. God is drawing us to see there's that theme that comes from that, that verse seven, carried through here, to see what man cannot see. 
All that man sees is Saul's kind of troubled. He needs some help. We need a musician. Who's going to do that? Oh, I know a guy. He'll come and do it. Oh, here's the guy who plays the lyre. Oh, Saul's feeling better now. But see, there's far more going on than that. Now, see, we know that because we know the story. And because we know the story, it may not kind of have any wow factor with us. That's why we need to kind of come at it afresh and work through this. Maybe as if this was the first time you were reading the story, think through, wow, this is, this is pretty incredible stuff. So God is drawing us to see what man cannot see, namely God's providence in raising up his chosen king. That Saul's suffering, that the servants seeking and David's serving are all part of God's behind-the-scenes providential plan. Now, friends, I know God's providence is not a new subject for us. I know we've talked about it before, but listen, when you understand that the affairs of your life are ordered by the providence of God, there is great comfort. And God's people need assurance that God is at work. And sometimes you're like, okay, God, you know, this is, you, you've called me now into your family, but how's that going to play out in the world, in my life, in my future? What's it going to be like? Or I'm looking to get married, and, and how are you going to work all the details out of all those affairs into my life? God's providence is at work, and you need to trust God's providence. Now, God's providence doesn't mean we just go and hang up our responsibility hat and say, Psh, I'm going to do whatever I want. We still are expected to think and behave in ways that honor God. As we're doing that, though, God carries on his providence. So God's providence is talking about his ability to control the affairs of life to accomplish his purposes. So let's begin with what I'm calling Saul's suffering. Saul's suffering. And we see that Saul's suffering is from God. We begin by thinking about the fact that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. This actually is part of the last section, but I bring it in because I think there is an overlap here. I do think that there is a, um, there's a purposeful transition here relating to this subject. Look, if you would, please, at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of the, his brother's and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, the, listen, the fact that the Spirit of the Lord rushes on a person in the Old Testament says nothing about the salvation of that person, okay? That's not what's going on here. It only communicates that God's power was at work on those whom he selected for service, so the Spirit of the Lord equipped the leaders of God's people for their exercise of faith that God had called them to. This is especially true in the book of Judges. We see the statement repeated. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel in chapter 3, verse 1. Gideon in chapter 6 and verse 34. Jephthah in chapter 11 and verse 29. But the character that we see it on most often in the book of Judges is the character by the name of Samson. 
I just want to just kind of walk through a little bit of Samson so that we can see just an idea of, of how this, this coming upon really fleshes out. So in chapter 13 and verse 25 of, of Judges, we find um, the birth of Samson. And there it says the spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson after his birth. Okay? Then in chapter 14, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson so that he tore a lion to pieces like one would tear apart a goat. I don't know when the last time was that you tore apart a goat. Um, you know, so you can imagine exactly. Well, maybe just pulling that, that leg off the chicken is about the closest we get to anything like it, right? But he, he tore apart this lion. Just like, right? just ripping it apart. Right? And that was by divine design, by the power of the Holy Spirit that had rushed upon him. Now chapter 14, verse 19, after what we'll call Riddlegate, where the, fiddle, the Philistines uh, were manipulating Samson's wife to disclose the answer to Samson's riddle, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson and he strikes down 30 men, killing them. And in chapter 15 and verse 14, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. He's bound and he rips apart the, the fetters that are holding him in place. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey and proceeds to kill 1,000 Philistine men. Now listen, this is, if you think that the word of God is a fable, that's, that's something for you to think about. But this is God revealing himself in his word and we need to believe what he says. The Spirit of God rushed upon him and he killed a thousand Philistine men. It wasn't, and hear this, and I mean this honestly, right? Samson looked a lot like me. I, I th he probably had a belly like me too, okay? Samson's strength was not in his great masculine physique. That's my point. He didn't go to 24-hour Philistine fitness. All of his strength was a result of God's spirit rushing on him for that particular task. It was a divine reality, a divine strength. And so it's within the realms of understanding, because it doesn't specifically say this, but it's within the realms of understanding to attribute Sam, Samson's last act of faith, it's called faith, Samson's recorded in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, to that the Spirit of the Lord's help when Samson stood in the temple of Dagon with all the Philistine leaders with the pillars to his sides and he pushes on them, causing the whole temple to just implode and kill so many of those people that were in there, even himself. By the strength of the Spirit of God that was on him. Now, this is what's going on. So there, there is a benefit, hear this, there's a benefit for the leader of God's people to be empowered by the Spirit of God. 
And so the, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David at that point in time. So here's maybe just kind of bringing it down. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of God's judges, it was for a specific task. And they recognized that their strength and their power that they were exercising was not from within them, but was from outside of them. Okay, it wasn't due to their own strength and their own power. In other words, Samson's strength was simply from God. It wasn't his own. Now, specifically David, it says in this passage, the way the Holy Spirit came upon him was new and unique. Notice what it says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, what? From that day forward. Which means that God's Spirit rushed upon him permanently. He had the Spirit of God on him from that day forward to equip him for the ministry that he was called to do. Now I want you to notice as we continue on in this story then, verse 14, that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David and it seems like as soon as the Spirit of God rushes upon David, that the, the newly appointed king, it departed from Saul, the rejected king. And of course this is all a consequence of Saul's sin of rejecting God and rejecting his counsel, and rejecting his word, and rebelling against him. To have the Holy Spirit was a gift and a privilege. And that's why David prays so passionately in Psalm 51 and verse 11, after he had committed sin with Bathsheba, and, and lied, and committed murder. This is what he says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, it was a privilege for him as a leader to have the Holy Spirit on him, to equip him, to enable him, to empower him. And so Saul was no longer equipped by God to lead Israel. He had to lead in his own limited and frail strength and wisdom. Now can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like to have the equipping presence of the Holy Spirit and to have it removed and what you're left with and you realize what you're left with it's just me in my own strength now friends it's it's important for us to note a few things here just about us we if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior you would be part of the we that has been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ his church not only that, we have the Spirit residing in us. He indwells us. At the moment of salvation, he takes residence in us. And that should remind us now, as we're coming to a passage like this, that there is no greater blessing than the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now just listen to these verses about the one that is often referred to as the forgotten God, the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then are evil, or who are evil, I should say, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, parents who are sinful, lavish on their children gifts. If that is true, imagine the God who is holy and righteous and perfect. And imagine the kind of gifts that he is lavishing on you. That gift is the Holy Spirit. This is the best gift he can give you. So the moment that you come to Christ through repentance and faith, and you are reconciled to God, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you. That is the best gift that you have from God. You have eternal life, but you have the living presence of the Holy Spirit at work, in you, equipping you. And there's no need to get more of the Holy Spirit. You can't get more of him. The question now is more about submitting to him listening to him, allowing him to have his way. And then, of course, we have Romans 14, 17, where it says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, see, that's, this, is, this is not kind of like taking us to a place where we're all like, woo okay, yeah, it's Sunday morning, let's feel the joy of the Holy Spirit. I know, I won't do that again. I know you're all really uncomfortable, right? Joy in the Holy Spirit is not something we conjure up. Joy in the Holy Spirit comes as a result of listening to and obeying and being guided and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's not some frenzied state that we get into. It is simply the interaction that we have because of this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Richard Phillips says it this way, we should count the the withdrawal of God's Spirit as the worst possible calamity and the presence of the Holy Spirit as the greatest possible help. So when we read, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, it's not just, oh, okay. You see, the magnitude, the gift of God has been removed and has been placed on another. And this is all a result of his disobedience. Now we have the Holy Spirit residing in us. He will not depart, but he can be grieved. He can be resisted. He can be ignored. He can be stiff-armed for all of you football players. And your conscience can be so callous that the Holy Spirit's presence is diminished by your consistent disobedience. Every time the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word and we refuse to listen to him or we get tired of listening to him, we're developing a callous on our hearts. And that toward the very person of God who wants to guide us and to counsel us and to lead us in paths of righteousness. He only wants us to be free from the bondages that are the result of the sin in our lives. And yet we don't listen to him. We push him aside. Friends, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a precious gift. 
but the ministry of the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. And notice what happens next. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So here we have this harmful spirit. Some passages or some translations call this an evil spirit. Right? Um, this harmful spirit is translated evil, but the idea is really, it's, it's a harmful, I think the ESV has done a good job in choosing a word that really communicates this. This is a, a, a spirit um, from God. So this, this word evil in scripture doesn't always mean satanic or demonic, okay? It can just simply mean something bad. In this case, it was a further judgment on Saul for his disobedience. Timing was perfect, right? So God's providence, just amazing, right? This was a further judgment on Saul for his disobedience. So what we have here is not a demon coming to harass Saul, but an angel or a spirit of the Lord sent from God to bring harm or judgment to Saul. Okay? So if you're thinking of two different aisles here, you're thinking one side is, this is the, the, the realm of Satan and his demons, and you have this is God and the realm of his holy angels. This was an angel coming from the realm of God and his holy angels coming now to harass Saul by means of judgment. Now that shocks many people in the context of Christian, because why would God want to harm anyone? Now God uses his holy messengers and ser as servants to carry out his word and his will in and through his creation. Here, God sends an angel to bring judgment to Saul in the form of harm. More specifically, torment as that word is used. So this idea of torment is to bring misery, distress, and harm. And if you're wondering, again, if this is a stain on the character of God, I want you to think again. If you want to look in the book of Job, in chapter 2 and verse 10, you, you can work there as I'm continuing on here. In the story of Job, the question is answered for us. Job, having suffered such a great loss as losing all his children, his property, even his own health, says to his mocking wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And what he means is calamity, hardship, difficulty, trial, harm, all the things that happened to him. In other words, why should we not expect that there be both good times from God as well as difficult times from God? In the same way, God's judgment was just and, and a difficult time for Saul. Now, even though God was exercising judgment on Saul through his harmful spirit, he was at the same time working his sovereign providential plan. Remember, everything in this text is happening for a purpose and is happening to bring out the story and the plan that God has in raising up his king. So God is fully aware of what's going on. He is not somehow shaking on his throne at all. 
He is behind all of it, and there's some good reasons about what is happening here. It's because Saul's suffering is leading now the servants to talk. And what are the servants talking about? Let's continue on, and let's think through what it says. Here again, we see the sovereign hand of God in the unfolding of his providence. We see that the servants seeking that we're gonna read about is from God. Verse 15, and Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Isn't it interesting that the servants recognize this as a harmful spirit from God? Now, one of the the things that some of the historians um, said about this is that there was kind of an idea um, when you abandon God, of course, then you also are embracing something else, right? A lot of paganism considers then if you are tormented somehow that this is the result of God um, punishing. And so they, they were attributing, likely attributing what they saw to God. Not necessarily that they had this ability to see with the truth, but that was, might want well to say, the superstitious belief at that point in time, right? They're recognizing then that, that somehow God was behind this. So then they say, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. A lyre is like a little harp, okay, like a handheld harp. So the, the servants observe Saul's torment and rightly attribute it to God, but their remedy is superficial. The remedy is music. Now, remember, music will help when you're tormented. How many of you like music? How many of you have different genres of music? And you're feeling certain ways. You put on different kinds of music, right? You want to stay awake. The certain kind of music you put on is like, okay, I'm awake now. Good, right? Or if you want to be calm, you put on some, like last night I was playing some, you know, some Spanish guitar. It was really, really nice and I was falling asleep, so I had to change it and put something else on, right? You just kind of, it does help you, all right? Um, and it was generally considered that the lyre, in particular, would combat bad spirits. And so music does have its place in our world as a remedy for trouble and stress. It soothes the soul, it calms the body, it relaxes the tension, but music doesn't get to the heart of the problem. Saul's problem wasn't going to be removed by music because Saul's problem was his own personal sin. This is how Gordon Kitty sees this. Having diagnosed the need for heart surgery, they proceeded to prescribe a sedative. You are tormented. Oh, we'll get some music for you. I might kind of just take a little bit of the pain away, but it doesn't deal with the problem at hand. See, what Saul needed was a faithful servant and a friend to counsel and urge him to turn from his sin of rebellion and pride and back to God in heartfelt repentance. Music was not a substitute for repentance. 
But effective music is a tool to draw us to a place where we can see God and our sin and desire restoration and repentance. So that's why when we're singing songs in the context of church, we like to use music. You see it throughout scripture that music is important in the church because it is a vehicle by which we can declare the glories of Christ, but we can also receive counsel from those songs that stir us up in our heart to question whether or not we are walking in such a way that would honor God. And if we find ourselves lacking, even while we're singing, we can pray to God and say, God, forgive me for that. As we're singing the song, I'm reminded of something that I need to change. It's not the music. It's the content of the word of God proclaimed in the music that is the power So music has its place. But God's grace is always available to anyone who will repent and believe. God says to us under the words of his prophet Zechariah, return to me and I will return to you. It's also worth remembering that an unrepentant heart is often the cause for emotional and psychological and even physical distress. Our society doesn't accept it because it doesn't want to acknowledge the presence of sin. But if you read through scripture, you're gonna find a number of places in scripture where this is played out. Let me just give you a few passages to ponder. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Notice the anxiety bears fruit, weighing that person down but a good word makes him glad. Proverbs 14, 13. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy, physical fruit. Proverbs 3, 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then just think of the example of Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, who having betrayed him, he committed suicide realizing the depth of his treachery against his master. How we see now that an unrepentant heart does often cause emotional, psychological, and physical distress. And so notice what it said in this passage. Seek out a man. But now, as we continue on, verse 17, Saul says to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. In other words, hey, having heard your, your, your suggestion, sure, go find him, look for him, provide him for me. Now don't miss the irony of what is being said here from the lips of Saul. Look back at chapter 16 and verse 1. Chapter 16 and verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king. And now... Saul is saying, in his desperation, provide for me a man. 
Now the surprise in this passage, the great surprise is that both the king and the man would be the same person, David. But how would God's provision of David take place? How would God weave David into the story here? How do we get from Saul's suffering and the servant's concern to the instruction of David, or introduction of David, I should say, and that's the great surprise in the next text. Notice verse 18. It just happened to be one of the young men who answered, Behold, I have seen a son, or you could say a man, of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So there just happens to be someone in Saul's court that happened to know Jesse and his family and happened to see one of his sons playing the lyre and happens to know something about his character. Just happens, right? Who would have guessed? What a stroke of luck. What an amazing coincidence. No, there's no such thing as coincidence with God. When you run into that friend at the grocery store and you weren't planning on it, you know what? God's in that. When you happen to be traveling and maybe you're at Disneyland and you're getting ready to go on, I don't know, Magic Mountain and that person you haven't seen for five years happens to be in line there, what's up with that? Just coincidence, right? No such thing as coincidence with God. You might ask yourself the question, why here, why now? But notice the description of David that we are given from this young man, this young servant that is part of the court here. He describes David as a man of valor. He describes him as a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. Now this is one of the reasons why we ask ourselves the question, if David, if this is chronological, this is out of place. Because if you remember in chapter 17, when David comes down and sees his brothers and the Philistines on one side, the Israelites on one side, and Goliath out there going, right? He seems like that there's no relationship with him and Saul at all, but we're going to find here that David is going to be in Saul's court, and there is some credibility about David being a man of valor and a man of war. So what's happened here is the narrator has brought this text in, like I was saying earlier, to illustrate the point, not necessarily to carry on the chronology of the story. And friends, this happens, and one of the places you see it happen quite actually a bit is, is in the Gospels. You have a general chronology, but then the, the, the writer of the gospel is saying, I, I want to illustrate this. I'm going to take another vignette of the life of Christ, and I'm going to put him next to this illustration so that we can see it unfold. We can see the character of Christ on display. But the question here is this. What was the key to David's character? And we're told there, the Lord was with him. All these criteria that are given as his description are the result of the Lord being with this young man, David. And so each of these descriptions 
are, they do characterize David, but hear this, they are the kind of qualities that we find in any young man or any young woman who is living faithfully for the Lord. And quite frankly, that should be any of us that are seeking to live for the Lord. And we could summarize these statements in this way. There's a strength of character that God is looking in all of, for all of us, in particular young men and young women. And it's marked by self-control and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. There's a steady courage that is willing to stand for the gospel in the face of intimidating opposition. And I, th- I just think living in the world today is becoming more confrontational for Christians, and especially our children. And they are getting blasted, especially in the context, might we say, of a, a public school. They're going to get blasted because of their faith. And even in the context of a Christian school, they're going to get blasted because they actually stand on and believe the word of God to be true. And so there's a courage that is necessary. And sometimes that courage is necessary in the context of their peers and from pop culture. And there's a careful speech that recognizes that the mouth is directly connected to the heart. And so this person learns to control the mouth by controlling the heart. They are willing to pray like David, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then a confident demeanor that is seen by the way that they behave in godly dignity and respect for others. Friends, those are, those are wonderful qualities. But none of those things can be true about David or a young person or about you unless one thing is true in our lives and that is that the Lord is with us. See, it begins by saying, the Lord is with me. The Lord is central in my life. Not only am I indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but the the Lord, by virtue of the Godhead, is at work in my life, and I am nurturing that. I am allowing him to have his way, so I'm submitting to God's truth. I'm interacting with him through prayer. I'm exercising the spiritual disciplines, whatever they may be, you know, Bible study, prayer, fasting, service, giving, just on and on. We could talk about some of those things. But I'm, I'm fleshing those out in the context of my Christian growth. And these attributes ascribed to David are a foreshadowing of the things to come in the unfolding story of David and his rise to serve God as the king of Israel. And we will see that David's strength of character and his steady courage and careful speech and confident demeanor um, as we press on in the story. At times, we would say, David, just, just go in there and sick him. And he's like, no, I can't. He's the Lord's anointed. Where does that come from? It comes from the Lord being with him. It comes from this character that he has as a result of the Lord in his heart. And friends, there's also a legacy that I think is worth kind of teasing out here and bringing into the context of the story as we think about this man, David. It's a legacy of a family. The book that is right before 1 Samuel is the book of Ruth. And it ends 
with the name of none other than David. Just end the book of Ruth with David. Why? You see, David's grandparents, or great-grandparents, I should say, were Ruth and Boaz. And oh, do they have a story to tell. Ruth, the Moabite woman, the Gentile brought in to the covenant of Israel, the woman of great faith and loyalty, Boaz, the man of integrity and responsibility, the kinsman redeemer. Can you imagine the kind of discussions they would have as the greater family gathered for dinner as long as great-grandma and grandpa were alive? And the legacy that would pass down as they continued to meet as a family. You know who my great-grandparents were? Boaz. You remember Boaz? Oh, yeah, Boaz, man. What a man he was. What about, what about Ruth? What a godly woman. So can you imagine the kind of themes that the family of Jesse had kind of weaving through their legacy that, that would be lived out now and brought to bear in this young man, David. And friends, I just kind of looked at this in my own way, personally, and said to myself, you know, in, in my heritage, my grandparents on my mother's side were missionaries to India. And they went out in, in, during the time in the era when you go out by boat. And they landed in India, and my, my grandfather was a, an itinerant missionary. He would go out on these, these trips. Three weeks he would be gone, and we'd be home for a week. Three weeks he'd be gone, he'd be home for a week. Visiting all these different towns where he had little churches, maybe some pastors, some people that he was shepherding and raising up and training and that kind of stuff. And both of them died in India serving the Lord. On my father's side, they were British business people. My, my my grandparents on my father's side were, they may have been believers, but they were not like active, strong believers. But my father, I think age 15, came to know the Lord in a dramatic way and had a vibrant relationship with God all through his ministry, all through his life, I should say, in that he worked for British Airways, and in working for British Airways, it took him to various places around the world. And I remember growing up, in particular like in Israel and in Germany, um, and in England, we would, we would go to multiple places of ministry. We would go to a church on Sunday morning, and then we would, in the afternoon, go to, this is in Germany, we would go to the um, army base where they'd have a chapel, and we'd go there, and then in the, after that, there'd be a whole bunch of GIs at our house for a Bible study, and then there'd be something going on in the evening. My parents were just always involved in that kind of stuff. And I think of my wife's family and their legacy and her grandfather planting a church in Oakland, California, first Spanish Baptist church in Oakland, having come from Mexico. And that church continues today. And there's people that are part of this church that are also part of that greater legacy. I want my kids to know those things and I want my kids to live their life with those realities kind of fueling them, saying, hey, listen, this is a little bit of, of who I am. And what am I gonna do with that? And you may look in your life and you say, well, I've got no legacy like, like that at all. Then start a legacy. Be the beginning of that. But see, this is, David's legacy is one of faithfulness and godliness. And it's no surprise then that we find David 
with these characteristics because the Lord was with him. So we move from Saul's suffering to the servant seeking to now David's and his serving. But we see that David's serving is from God. In other words, God has been behind Saul's suffering because it's because of Saul's suffering that the servants are even seeking a man. Get that? Without Saul's suffering, there wouldn't be any seeking. But now that they're seeking and a young boy says, I have someone I think would be good. His name is, I'm not sure, but he's the son of Jesse. And Saul says, go get him. Go get him for me, right? So verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin and wine and young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. Again, the irony here is staggering. Send me David, your son. The first time that we're introduced to David's name comes from the mouth of of Saul. And Jesse did what the king commanded and sends David with the gifts um, of honor to the king. So we've gone from seek out a man to here is David your man. Now it just seems so smooth, doesn't it? How all this kind of works together. I mean, looking back, it makes sense. Oh yeah, sure. But on the front end of it, how in the world, God, are you going to bring this shepherd boy, David, into the context of being a king of Israel? But look how God has been at work. His providential hand just controlling the affairs of man at this point in time. See, this is not what man naturally sees. This is what God allows us to see by virtue of his word and his inspiration of the narrator to record this for us, not just to record the events. You know, Saul was troubled. A servant said, hey, why don't we get some music for him? Does anyone know anyone? Yeah, I got some guy, and here's a guy who's playing music. What we're told here is there's far more significance to those events than simply, oh, here's a guy with a lyre. This is pregnant with irony and power and meaning and God's sovereign purposes at work and on display for us to see. So now, let's look at what we're saying David is serving. Look at what the young shepherd David, or how he impacts Saul, verse 21 and following. And David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, from out in the fields to now being affectionately loved by Saul. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and as well, and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Just those, those, those four characteristics here of David's kind of relationship with, with Saul. It says, we're told here that Saul loved David. Saul loved David. Now, without getting carried away, um, John Woodhouse 
I think clarifies some things here. There is this, there is a, a love that is expressed by those who are rulers of nations that is a love that is somewhat political. Let me try and explain what I'm saying. Um, we live here in the United States of America, so we have like a, a president that either serves for four years or eight years, and we hope that it stays that way. Um, and I mean that from the perspective that it should. But, but if you go to a place like England, um, many of the people in England love their queen. They love the person who is their ruler, so to speak. Now, there's a prime minister there. They may not love him, but they love her, right? There's, there is a kind of a political love. And so it's not saying that they looked at each other with kind of, you know, this manly love. That's not what's going on here. This is a loyalty love. Now, if we want to think of it in, in terms of the fact that, that David had affection toward him, but it wasn't necessarily much more than the kind of political love. But the irony here is, is that it should be David loving Saul. But it's Saul loving David. See, it's usually the, the person who's in charge that is the one who receives that kind of political love. Not only that, Saul trusted David. He trusted David. Um, usually the armor bearer was someone that you were willing to trust because you want your straps tied up properly. You want your weapons ready and available next to you. you want, this person's going to care for them, right? You, this person's the kind of person that you're going to have with you. You want to trust them. So he welcomed him in a little bit. And it does give a little bit of a maybe insight, we're not sure exactly where this would fit into the life of David, but even in, in the chapter 17 story where Saul says, why don't you put on my armor? Yeah, David here ultimately was one who was handling his armor. David, or Saul also favored David. He liked David. We can only assume that this is all related to the way in which David served his king. And then Saul ultimately was refreshed by David. Again, the irony of what we're reading is staggering. The rejected king is being refreshed by the newly anointed king. But what man doesn't know is that God is at work raising his chosen king in the person of this harp-strumming shepherd boy who brings refreshment to King Saul. See, we are given the insight into the story. Those who are in Saul's court, and even Saul himself, have no clue about what's going on. But God's providential plan is at work. Now, many years later, the prophet Isaiah would write about a shoot that would come from Jesse. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Because the story of David and Saul, in particular how we're beginning to see David here, points now to the one who is ultimately that king of kings and lord of lords, that would be the ultimate king, 
and that is Jesus himself. But listen to how God's providence continues now and how Isaiah explains it. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord, catch that, shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips and shall kill the wicked. And you just catch the nuances from, from last week and from this week, from all of chapter 16, where God is not measuring by sight, but he's measuring by righteousness. And Christ himself will come and be that shoot. And the spirit of God will be on him as he is doing these things. Now when the spirit of of the God rushed upon David, a backdrop was set for the very promise that we're we're told there, but this is a promise that will be fulfilled when uh, when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Now John chapter one and verse 32 says this, and John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him, talking about Christ. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I just see the the connections here. You see how this passage is is screaming at us to think about the one who is yet to come. There is David ultimately to be the king that was yet to come, but it pushes us forward to realize that ultimately it's Jesus Christ. Now friends, as we bring things to a close here, as we reflect on this text and prepare for the Lord's table, we can remember first of all that Jesus is the better David. He's the better David. When Jesus came, hear this, he came with strength of character to feel our struggles and desires but still not sin. He came with a steady courage in the face of the worst opposition but was still victorious and always ready to go to Jerusalem to be mocked, to be scorned, to be arrested, to be crucified, and then to be buried, but ultimately to rise again. He came with careful speech that spoke the truth as the word incarnate and was silent before his accusers. He came as a, with confident demeanor. He carried the dignity of heaven wherever he went. He's a better David. Not only that, Jesus is the better solution. 
Jesus came not merely to soothe us in our sinful misery, but to deliver us from our sin. Jesus didn't come down to this earth to play his harp for us. He came to this earth to die for our sin on a cross, shedding his blood, bearing the wrath of God in our place. Saul merely received music therapy, but not the Spirit of God. Friends, Jesus is not simply supposed to make us feel better, but he changes our very being so that before God we are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. Stop trying to find a lozenge to soothe your troubled soul. Instead, turn to Christ and find total healing by putting your faith and trust in him and him alone. See, he's the better solution. And finally, Jesus provides a better refreshment. You can go through all this life and try to find satisfaction, but you will not find it except in Jesus Christ and in him alone. He is the one that truly satisfies. True refreshment is only found in him. And such refreshment is the result of our repentance and faith. And it includes the joy that is found by the presence of the Holy Spirit. See, this refreshment is a renewal. This refreshment is, is processing our sinful struggles and lives through the, the sift, so to speak, of God's truth, recognizing what is sin, dealing with that sin in God's way, finding forgiveness, embracing the restoration that we have because of that forgiveness, and being able to say, ah, because everything that we received comes from God. And he refreshes and revives our souls if we listen to him, and follow his will and his counsel. So this morning, friends, as we, as we partake of the Lord's table, I want you to know that we practice here what's called open communion. That means you don't have to be a member of our church. But if in your conscience, in your heart, you are saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I have embraced him as my master. He, he is the one that I worship. I am his child. Then I invite you to join with us this morning. Now you may be wrestling with some sin in your life. You may be in bondage by some kind of a, a harmful experience that you're going through and you're wrestling and you're, 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 you're trying to figure out, God, what are you doing? Or maybe there's some sin that you've just been committing, but right now the Holy Spirit who is in you, who loves you, who brings joy when listened to is saying to your heart, listen, confess that sin, repent of that sin. Friend, if that's, if that's you and you're saying, yes, I, that, that's where I wanna be, you need the Lord's table today. This is not just simply a ceremony we go through. Certainly it's a time of remembrance and I'm not making anything much more spiritual about that by saying, but the time of remembrance is an opportunity for us then to consider our relationship with God 
And when we are broken and we're humble and we feel unworthy, that is when we need to celebrate what the Lord has done through the shedding of his, of his, of his, uh, his blood and, and the dying of his, of his body on that cross. So friends, this morning, after we pray, I'm gonna pause for a little bit, then I'm gonna pray and we're gonna celebrate the Lord's table. You are welcome to participate with us.